we are doing a kind of complementary Sunday School series on the Christian disciplines. We're just going to focus on two, which is prayer and scripture reading. Um, and I'm going to tackle prayer, because uh, Wade tackled prayer in the sermon, and then we're going to uh, switch. So, uh, let me direct you to the Master Prayer, the prayer that our Lord taught us. Um, it's found in two passages in Scripture, both Matthew and Luke. Interestingly, they're slightly different. But uh, let me read you Matthew's version. Pray then like this. So Jesus, Jesus is teaching his disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, al- as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this, uh, I want, we're not going to uh, uh, unpack and go through this uh, prayer verse by verse, although I think that would be interesting. But I just want to show you that this is the model of how we should pray. And there are four classic elements that you could find in this prayer. And this is sort of like the way I want to um, conduct this class. Uh, many of you have probably heard of this acronym, ACTS. I think it's a very helpful uh, paradigm, uh, framework for thinking about prayer. So A is for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, or making your request. Join us. Uh, there, There are handouts. So, uh, it's acts because it spells out some, a nice word, but uh, actually they don't have to be in any particular order, I think. Also, I don't think all four elements have to be in every prayer. But I think that on the whole, um, if you look at all of your prayers, your holistic prayer life, it should contain these four elements. And I think um, this is a very helpful way for us to think about it. It gives us a structure for how we should pray. So, first prayer is adoration. And uh, my first point I would, I would make is that prayer is orient, orienting yourself to the true reality of God. So, prayer is first and foremost a consciousness of God, that He is the center of all reality. And, and we realize that, or we recall that to our minds and our hearts um, through prayer. So, let me read to you Psalm 73. It's a very uh, well-known psalm. The, the psalmist talks about at the beginning of the psalm how he's envious of the arrogant, of the prosperity of the wicked. He sees uh, good things happening to people who do evil, um, whereas he's, he's uh, experiencing troubles and difficulties. And he says, my foot almost slipped. So then, but then the, the crucial turning point is verse 16. Let me read it for you. But when I thought of how to understand this, right, he's, he's trying to wrestle with why does the world seem so unjust? Why, does, why, why, why do wicked people prosper? He says, it seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until, right, so here's the turning point, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Surely you have set them in slippery, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 
like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So the psalmist here is filled with envy and discontent. He sees the prosperity, especially of the, of the godless. He's filled with distress. He almost loses his faith. Right? He almost says, well, what good is faith? Uh, or maybe biblical faith is not true, right? Because it doesn't explain the world. Until verse 17, he comes into the presence of God. He looks into the face of God. And then he's, then the world makes sense, right? What, what is it? Which is that, verse, seven, verse 18 and verse 19, that um, any apparent prosperity that godless or wicked people experience is actually temporary. That in the ultimate scheme of things, there will be justice. In the ultimate scheme of things, there will be a reckoning, a final reckoning, and that if you live your life apart from God, eventually um, destruction and disaster will fall upon you. And so prayer is looking away from the distorted reality that sort of our idols present to us, and it's returning to sanity. And I like the way the psalmist expresses it. He says it's like a dream. So that actually the world that we see uh, if we understand it outside of God, it's actually a dream world. The real world, right? Like, you know, when you have a dream, it seems real at the time, and then you wake up out of the dream, and then you realize, no, this is real, right? How do you know what, which is the real world, which is the dream world? Um, in the dream, you don't know, right? If you've seen Inception. Uh, you don't know. Um, you know because where is God in that, in your framework of understanding? And when God is at the center, that's the real world, right? Um, think about the example of Job. Job endures great suffering. In a single day, he loses his uh, family. He loses his entire fortune. And then shortly after, he loses his health, which is uh, um, the, the severity of his affliction is very uh, painful. And he's in turmoil. He's asking questions like, how, why is this happening to me? Where is God in all of this? And then if you read Job, you know that at the end of the book, God does come to him. God appears. But instead of answering Job's questions, God begins to ask a series of questions to Job, right? And all of the questions are like, you know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, can you, can you capture a Leviathan with a, with a fish hook? You know, and so forth and so forth. All the questions are basically reminding Job of God's godness, right? And it's very interesting Job responds, he says, I put my hand over my mouth. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. And you see Job come to a place of deep peace, and he's helped, which is really kind of almost a non sequitur on the surface of it, because Job is suffering. Job says, I need explanations. Where is you know, God, what's the reason for this? And then God comes and God says, I'm God. Let me remind you that I'm God. And Job says, thank you very much. <laughs> right? None of his questions are answered. Um, he's not given an explanation for anything. But then Job is helped. Why is Job helped? Because he comes into the presence of God. He sees the face of God. Um, so Job and we don't need answers. What we need ultimately is we need to see the face of God. Right? So that's why we, in prayer, it's very important to adore God to pause and praise him and think about him because um, we live in this dream world full of idols, but then when God is at the forefront, 
then we wake up into reality. So number two, um, not only is it waking up to the true reality of God, number two, prayer makes vivid the truth of who God is. So let's look at um, Ephesians one, there's a prayer embedded in Actually, there are several prayers in Ephesians where Paul just breaks, breaks out into prayer while he's writing his letter. Um, Paul writes, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So let's listen in on Paul's prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So, if you look at the prayer, um, what's conspicuous is that Paul doesn't ask for any change in circumstances for the Ephesian Christians. Um, We'll talk about that. Can you ask for change in circumstances? Um, and I will say yes, but we'll get to that later. But notice that Paul's principal concern or principal prayer is for a heart that will grasp the glory of God, right? He says that we may know the riches of his, of his, in, of this inheritance that he's given us, his immeasurable greatness of his power. And so what is prayer? When you're, when you're, when you're kneeling down in prayer and you're going before God, you're, you're in a very profound way. It's a vehicle by which you take what you already know intellectually, right? Just in your minds, just as abstract theology. And you're bringing it down and you're impressing it upon your heart. Um, so that what Paul here is saying and what uh, scripture says so often is that we don't need a change in circumstances, um, but ultimately we need a deeper experiential knowledge of God. Um, so that the love of God Right? Why aren't we transformed by the love of God? Because it's not real. It's not this vivid, palpable reality. Um, there's a, there's this movie I saw recently, Ex Machina. Has anyone seen it? Yes. Gene, Gene, Gene is my movie buddy, and David, right? So it's this really fantastic uh, sci-fi movie. I think it's like, the, Gene, would you say it's the best sci-fi movie you've seen last year? Wow, a lot of pressure. <laughs> oh, last year. Yeah, last year. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> fantastic movie, right? I, uh, uh, it's on free on Netflix, right? So you can you can watch it. But basically, it's about uh, AI, right? Uh, artificial intelligence. And then uh, there's this great line, which really it has nothing. I mean, it has nothing to do with with with. Uh, um, there's no necessarily direct connection, but um, there's a guy who's talking to an AI, and he gives a parable, and it's the parable of the black and white room. Do you remember this? And then he says, uh, imagine there's a scientist whose specialty is the study of color. And so uh, she knows everything you can know about color. She knows uh, wavelengths and light theory and, and all kinds of the, the, the mechanics of light and so forth. She can, she can write a dissertation on color, but she's lived all her life in a black and white room. And then imagine that she steps out of the room into the beautiful, colorful, natural world, and she's awash in color, and she experiences color not just at an intellectual level, but at a sensorial, visceral level, right? And so in the movie, the whole point is um, the AI is in the black and white room. The human being is out in the natural world. But I like that image, the, which is that I think for so many of us, uh, the doctrine of God, theology, we're in the black and white room. <laughs> and 
we can probably get a hundred percent grade on, you know, theology 101, doctrine of God, and what is the gospel. But it's not this vivid, overwhelming, uh, flattening uh, knowledge, experiential knowledge, just like if we were to step out into the world. So that's what prayer is getting us towards. Um, ultimately, prayer is not just a way to get things from God. It's to get more of God. And by the way, this presupposes that you have a life soaked in Scripture. Because if the first step is adoration, how do you adore a God that you barely know? Um, I, I remember several times where we, uh, we've had prayer meetings, not we, but our church, but you know, in my life. And, and then the prayer leader would say, let's follow Acts. And so we'd say, okay, let's adore God. And it would be silence. <laughs> it would be difficult and awkward because we don't know what to say about him. We don't know who he is. Um, so we have to understand that prayer and scripture go together. And it's in many ways a conversation so that God is communicating to us through scripture and we respond to him in prayer. Um, and you can't just say, I'm just going to do prayer and skip scripture. <laughs> um, you're missing half the conversation. It's impossible to have only half a conversation. Um, so if you find your prayer life is dry, one of my diagnostic questions would be, well, how is your scripture reading life? And I think that if you, as you read scripture, you will naturally find yourself like putting scripture down and then responding to him in prayer responding to him through one of these elements. Um, just the other night, I was reading in Psalms that God is everlasting to everlasting. And I remember just like pausing and thinking about that. And that it's such an amazing description of God, right? Everlasting, uh, uh, the word everlasting in the Hebrew word, it, it just means like, like forever and ever and ever. Like there is no end. There is no terminus. So God is from everlasting past to everlasting future, there is no beginning. There is no end with God. And it was just amazing that this is our God. And so we need to have a specific knowledge of him to adore him. Okay? So that's my first point. Uh, the first point is that we adore God. Any questions on the adoration element? So, by the way, it doesn't have to be that you're, every prayer you're like, adoration, all right. <laughs> Three attributes of God I must adore him for. Um, I'm just saying that the whole of your prayer life should have adoration in it. And if you and if you have a conspicuous absence of adoration, I think you're missing a huge part of what real and true prayer is. Um, any questions before we move on to the second point? All right. Uh, prayer is thanksgiving. So my third point is that prayer is a deep is is expressing a deep dependence on God. Look with me to Mark nine. So this is the story, right? Um, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus comes down with his disciples. And then he's, uh, some of his disciples, Peter, James, uh, John, and then um, he sees his disciples bickering with the village people because they were trying to uh, heal uh, a boy who has this evil spirit, right? This uh, unclean spirit. And they can't uh, exercise. They can't cast it out, right? So Jesus does it. Remember, and it's the famous story, right? Jesus says, um, I can do it if you believe. Father says, help my unbelief. Do you remember I believe, help my unbelief. And then at the end of the story, uh, when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, right? Because they're embarrassed. They're traumatized by this whole experience. They say, why could we not cast this unclean spirit out? 
And Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Um, and I think it's an expression that basically says, uh, okay, you disciples were trying to do this by your own strength, by your own capability. You didn't even pray, <laughs> um, which means you didn't, ex- you, didn't, you didn't depend on the power of God. Um, you didn't ask for his help. So the absence of thanksgiving comes from the heart that says, I have done this for myself. Um, prayer acknowledges that we are sustained moment by moment by God. And if you don't find yourself uh, thanking God, um, uh, expressing gratitude towards God, you're not like you're not connected to reality, because you don't realize that moment by moment you're sustained by God, right? Um, every every moment of your life, you're being held in the hand of God, right? All your molecules are being held together. Um, disaster doesn't fall upon you suddenly because God is keeping them because he's a shield around you. Doesn't that amaze you? Doesn't that overwhelm you with um, with gratitude every day? Um, and so I think for many of us, we do have a, pray, a thankless prayer, prayer life. <laughs> and therefore, it doesn't come naturally. And therefore, I do think it's a discipline. And it's something that you have to continually um, practice praising God and thanking God. Uh, Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Right. So he basically says our existence is totally dependent on God and therefore we should thank him for it. All right. Point number four, thank you, uh, thanksgiving reorients the heart. Let me read to you uh, Paul's uh, statement in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your let your requests be made known to God. And then he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think it's interesting here that Paul um, contrasts and juxtaposes anxiety and worry and stress with thanksgiving. Right? Why is that? Because thanksgiving is a reorientation of your heart so that you're not grumbling, you're not complaining. Um, for me, just to share with you my own sinful heart, I'm a master expert complainer and grumbler. Um, everything, uh, always I find the, the bad thing in everything how it's not up to uh, my standards, how this experience is a disappointment. Um, and I'm always unhappy. And if you are constantly complaining, it's a heart that, it reveals a heart that is self-absorbed, is full of self-pity. But to know God and to love God is to constantly look upward, is to cons- constantly see his abiding goodness, to see God in the equation. And let me also say that Thanksgiving trains our heart to see God's good good and wise providence. Um, so I mentioned this already, but I want to uh, underscore it, which is that uh, this is this does not come natural. So if you look at first, do I have it printed for you, First Thessalonians 5? No, okay. So let me just read it to you. Um, as I read First Thessalonians 5, it's a very famous verse. I want you to notice that we are to give thanks in everything, even tragedies and, and, and our sorrows. So listen to what Paul writes. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
right? I think what that means is not that you're praying moment by moment, that but prayer saturates your life and it saturates every season of your life. Pray without ceasing. Listen to this part. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So to give thanks in all circumstances, what does that mean? It means, um, it means that even when bad things are happening to you, right? Tragedies befall you, um, setbacks, disappointments, you are to give thanks. And I think that doesn't mean that you look for the silver lining in the dark cloud. I think it, it's a complete reorientation of your understanding of everything so that you realize all your bad things will turn into good. Your good things will never be taken away from you and the best is yet to come. It's to know that your ultimate good things are spiritual goods that are lasting and enduring. They can never be taken away. That you are always God's uh, adopted child, son and daughter. That uh, there's a resurrected world coming. That God's love for you is unbreakable, indestructible, unshakable. So that even through the furnace of sufferings that, that you will inevitably go through, you know even though even that even that experience is from God's good, wise providence, and therefore you can thank Him. That's what Scripture says. I don't think it means that um, we have this artificial kind of like plastic smile on our face, so that even as we you know go through difficult, like you break your leg and you smile and say, "I'm so thankful." <laughs> no, uh, if you read through Scripture. People are weeping all the time. Um, it doesn't mean that you deny your sorrows, but it means that underneath the sorrows, the sorrows are superficial, actually. What is at the core is there is a joy. It doesn't mean a ha-ha happy joy, but it's a joy knowing that you're in God's hands, right? Um, so I think this takes practice. Um, when bad things happen, the first instinct is to complain, is to feel sorry for yourself. But you go to God in prayer. Yes, you pour out your heart. You say, Lord, this is happening to me. I feel very sad. Um, but then you thank him. You praise him for the good that he's done for you. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. Um, so those are the first two points. Uh, adoration, thanksgiving. Notice that if you look at the Lord's Prayer, the first part is all about God. You're thinking about God. And then... Only in that framework do we start thinking about ourselves, confession and uh, supplication. Only then is it safe, I think, to bring your requests. Um, any questions before we move on to the second point? The third point, which is supplication. Supplication is just a fancy word so that we can make it into acts. Otherwise, it would be a weird acronym. Uh, making of requests, right? So the first point I would make is that prayer truly changes things. Um, I think that there's a kind of hyper-spirituality, and I've heard this expressed numerous times, that says um, prayer only changes you. It, no, it doesn't change your circumstances. I think uh, I really appreciate that perspective because prayer does change you. Um, again, prayer brings you into the presence of God. Um, prayer fills your heart with gratitude and takes away the complaining heart. But... Prayer does change things. We see this all throughout Scripture. Let me just give you one verse, James four. If you've uh, done, if you've been a fa uh, family, but if you've been in a community group, last year we studied this, right? James writes, "You do not have, listen, because you do not ask." 
let me read that again. You do not have, right? Why do you have lack, lacking things in your life? Why do you lack good things? It's because James says you do not ask God. And then he says, you ask God, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then another verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So James explicitly tells us that prayer has power, right? Not just inner transformational power, but prayer has power in this world that God appointed prayer to change things. And then James commands us, ask for things. And I think partially the reason why we have prayerless lives is because we don't believe prayer has power. If we truly understood that prayer changes things, that we receive good things from our Heavenly Father through prayer, we would pray. (laughs) We would pray all the time, right? We would ask Him. I think it's honestly, we, we think prayer is a weak, and flimsy and spiritual thing. And the only good that you get out of prayer is you sort of are pious and you're just sort of spiritual. And we're like, well, I could do without that. (laughs) Um, That's a bad attitude too. But prayer truly changes things. Receive good things from, from prayer. Then, of course, the natural theological question that many of you are asking is, wait a minute. If prayer truly changes things, then who is ultimately in charge, right? So I think here's a deep, a deep mystery, that God is both sovereign and he has appointed prayer to have the power to change things. So let me give you an example of this, right? Uh, in Exodus, do you remember uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and then um, he comes down, he sees the people worshiping the golden calf. And then God says, that's it. Uh, I've had it with these stiff-necked, rebellious people. I'm going to cast them off. I'm going to start anew with you, Moses. You're going to be my new people. Uh, these people I'm going to abandon. And Moses prays to God, and he's pleading with God, and God says, yes, I will do what you ask. And it seems very strange, very um, difficult to grasp, but Moses seems to change God's mind. Right? How are we to understand this? Um, I think what this is saying saying is that um, through prayer, uh, things can be changed. Does it mean God's will, like God was intending to go this way, but then He changes His mind as a result of prayer? No, but that God somehow appoints and uses prayer so that. His will is directed, right? So that should encourage us to pray. In fact, Jesus commands us to pray with uh, with temerity, with uh, importunity, um, like a child going to his father, persistently pestering his father again and again and again, and and not to cease, not to give up. Um, so prayer changes things. That's point five. Let me go to point six. Um, we must pray... Therefore, according to God's will. So the natural follow-up question is, what if we ask for the wrong things, right? If prayer changes things, um, um, what if we ask for something that's wrong or harmful to us? In fact, James says that in verse 3, right? You don't get what you ask for because you ask wrongly. 
And therefore, we must pray according to God's will, right? So we must pray for things that are um, true. So this is where the paradox is sort of semi-resolved, which is that um, your prayer truly has power and it truly changes things. But it change, but but it has power because it's in accordance with God's will. Well, why doesn't God just do things without prayer? Because it is His delight to answer the cries of His children, right? To do it through prayer. Yes, Winnie. I feel that God already has made up His mind. Yes. So it's difficult to. So feel like God is sovereign, but God is always sovereign through means, right? Or or He He always exerts His will. But he never shortcuts the means. The means is always prayer. So that's why James can say, you do not have because you did not ask. You did not utilize this incredible weapon in our spiritual warfare called prayer. Um, but you know, it's like, well, God is going to do what he wants to do. It's like... Right. So I, I think a fatalist can say, listen, if God has appointed prayer to do his will, then he'll just give me this desire to pray, and then I'll pray, and then, then it'll happen, right? Um, no, false. Um, you are responsible. Um, otherwise, James would not cast blame, right? He would not say, you do not have because you do not ask. Um, so there we, we come to the intersection of a paradox, which is that um, you are held responsible, and yet God is sovereign. How do we reconcile or combine those two things? You don't. You hold them in tension in your mind, and then you realize that God is beyond your understanding. But you know that you pray. You know that 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 in asking for the good things that God wants to give to you in accordance with His will, that is how you will receive those good things through prayer, not through anything else. Not like um, if you want if if you want um, if you want Jordan to grow up, your daughter, to be a godly woman a woman who uh, honors Christ, um, her, for her life to be filled with uh, joy and thanksgiving, you pray. You will not get that without prayer. So you pray. You pray desperately. You pray all the time. You can't say, like, well, you know, she's destined to be Christian or not. It's already determined. No. No. Um, let, me, let me skirt on some dangerous ground. Uh, don't pray for her, and you will not... And, and then you will see what will happen. Oh, yeah, not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying that, right? I mean, right, but. Right, the scientist in you will say, let me do a study. One child I will not pray for, one child I will pray for. Let's see what happens. Random sampling. <laughs> um, yes, Becky? Because there are more goods that that come out of prayer than simply receiving good things, right? We commune with God, we know Him more deeply. So God wants us, our, He wants a life that's saturated in prayer. So He waits to give us the good things that He wants to give us. He waits for us to ask for it, and He will give them to us 
in response to prayer. That's the vehicle by which. I think when we understand it like that, it should really get us excited. We can receive good things from the Father through prayer. So how do we ask then? How do we ask according to God's will? John 15. Do I have that verse printed? Yes, okay. Um, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, whatever, and it will be done for you. So Jesus says, abide in me. What is that? That's uh, He's talking about um, union. Abide means to live or to dwell. He, mean, he, he says to be so connected to me, to be so uh, 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 one, to experience a oneness with me, a life with me, that um, my words live in you, right? To be so filled with my words, then that will transform your desires, transform your your. Um, your goals in life so that you will want what the Father wants, right? So that you'll be aligned to God's will. And this is why, and I think this is an appropriate place to mention this, why we always pray in Jesus' name, right? Um, I think a lot of people think uh, in Jesus' name is sort of like the standard way you end the prayer um, as a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, a farewell punctuation mark, right? Jesus is sincerely Eric Jung. (laughs) Um, But actually it comes from, so where does this come from? It comes from John 14, 14. Let me read it for you. Jesus says, ask me anything in my name and I will do it, right? So Jesus commands us to pray in his name. Uh, What is, why, what's going on here? In the ancient world, um, a person's name is uh, is um, coexistent with their 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 identity, their their who they are, their reputation, their values. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, of uh, the Wire. I don't know if you've ever seen the Wire, where um, uh, oh, I just thought of this illustration, so I should have thought it out before. But uh, what's his name? Stan Marlowe. Yes, Marlowe. So if you've seen the last, no one's seen this, so I'm going out on the edge. Um, if you've seen the show, the very last season, there's this gangster named Marlo, right? And uh, Marlo um, has been challenged by Omar to some, like, battle. But all of Marlo's lieutenants keep that knowledge from him because Omar is so fearsome. But then Marlo finds out at the end, and he's furious, right? He's like, my name, my name has been out there and it's been tarnished, it's been damaged, right? And it's it's somebody's name and who they are, they're identical. They're, they, they, you can't separate them, right? So for example, in Exodus chapter 3, when, um, when Moses asked God, what is your name? Like, who shall I say sent me? He's not just saying, okay, what's the sound that I'm supposed to associate with you? Um, which is kind of the way we American thinks, thinks, think of it, right? Like a lot of times we choose names because it sounds nice, um, which is fine. Um, but uh, when Moses asks for God's name, he's saying, who are you? What's your character? Who's, what's your identity? So what does God say? He says, I am who I am. He reveals his self-originating. He doesn't depend on anything, his eternal existence. So when we pray in Jesus' name, it's it's in, to pray in accordance with his nature, his mission, and his will. So you don't have to even say in Jesus' name. Because if you say, oh, you know, that's a... I, I, you, can, you can say, 
I pray in accordance with Jesus as well. I pray in accordance with his mission, his character. That's what you're essentially saying, okay? Um, here's, a, here's, a question, here's a good, interesting, practical question that I always come up with. What if we don't know God's will? So let's say you visit your friend in the hospital. Your, ho- your friend has cancer, terminal cancer. How should you pray? I think I've noticed that we're afraid to pray too strongly, right? We're, we don't want to step on God's sovereignty, right? So we're very reluctant sometimes to pray for healing. So we pray for spiritual goods as if that's what God is capable of not, and not the other thing. So we say, you know, I pray for peace. Uh, I pray for uh, comfort. Um, but sometimes people say we pray for healing if that's your will. Um, so what's going on here? I think we're, I think what would be helpful is to understand that there's a difference between God's um, revealed will and his secret will. So let me, let me go into a little bit more. Okay, so his revealed will is the will that God has revealed to us in Scripture. Um, so these are the Ten Commandments, his moral laws. Um, this is God's uh, vision for the future resurrected, um, new created world that's coming. And his revealed will is that he is against sickness and disease. He is He hates death. So... Sometimes, though, like, is this world, is it full of sickness and death? Yes. So there's another will, a secret will, that God does not reveal to us. Some people call this his sovereign will. So that God sovereignly wills death and disease and evil to exist in this life, in this world, for now. And he doesn't explain it to us. He doesn't whisper to us what is his secret will. He only tells us what is his revealed will. So when you pray, you always only pray for his revealed will. You have no idea what his secret will is. Your friend, will your friend die from cancer, yes or no? That's God's secret will. You have no access to that. You only know God's revealed will, which is that God hates cancer. God hates death. So boldly pray for healing for your friend. Boldly pray for, uh, uh, for the good things according to what you know. But you always leave room for God's sovereignty. So yes, for example, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. Right? So I think it is good, uh, not so quickly to get there, but it is good to have that dueling perspective, right? Which is, you pray for healing, but then you say, Lord, your will is always good. And so give us uh, give us uh, comfort and give us peace in accepting that, right? So when you go as a pastor to you know family yeah. dying, yeah, you don't if you if you say that like pray that that this person be healed, you don't worry that the family goes back and say you know. Yeah, I think a lot of times we're afraid that we're going to make God look bad. Right. Yeah. So I don't have that fear at all, um, because. If, 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 you look, if, if you look at uh, the New Testament, um, they, don't, they don't have that kind of timid prayer. 
they always make really bold requests. And then people always say, well, that's the New Testament. Our spirit was alive. You know, but now we live in this dead world. We have crumbs of the spirit. We can't ask for big and great miraculous things. Um, I don't think that's good or true. I, I always pray for healing, um, for, for their health to be preserved, um, for restoration. I always ask for the biggest, greatest, most beautiful thing according to God's revealed will. But then I also always say, but Lord, you know, you will, you know, not my will. Our wisdom is always limited. And so you always do what's good for your people. And so give us trust, even as we walk through, you know, the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know if that helps. Well, it's kind of similar because I had a couple who happened to be Christian who came through my office for yeah. like miscarriage, and and mm. and they were open with me praying with them. Mm. But I was very careful not to say, "Well, it's never going to be miscarriage," because you know. So I, <coughs> I was very careful not to say, you know, this baby will be healthy. Because I can't. But yeah, but I think I think. Um, I was careful, but I can remember. Yeah, I think I think. Happened just recently, and and like you, you know, you go, well, you know, the odds are. <laughs> it's not, it's like scientifically. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not good. And then you want to try to comfort the family. You want to be there for the family, and yeah. then. And you ask for something so bold. Yeah. And you feel like yeah, make God look bad. I go, well, I don't want to pick. You know, I know they won't. You don't want to put God on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, and but then. It's it's really am I not enough faith like I, I so I think it goes back again to adoration as well right I think so a big part of prayer is adoring God so you know that God is a God um, He's a heavenly Father um, He loves justice He loves restoration He loves healing so you say God according to your character we know that you 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 love these things so we ask for a safe delivery. We ask for a healthy baby. Um, we ask for healing from cancer because that's the God that you are. But we know that you have a, a wise and sovereign plan that sometimes we can't, we don't see, we don't understand. So give us trust. Give us faith. Um, abiding Thanksgiving even when we go to difficulties. So it's a so yeah you have to have both elements but I think people are afraid to go for the wait. I was gonna say like uh, Paul he had a thorn in his side and he said he was right. for God to yeah. remove it. Yeah. God never removed it. Yeah, never but he was so bold yeah. in asking. He did, he wasn't hyper spiritual like he wasn't saying Lord I know you give me in weakness your strength is made known so I'm not gonna. He asked. I think there's a, within that there's there's two elements. Number one is trust that God. Heal. Yeah, and there's also trust in God in a sense of submission, saying God, like even if you don't heal, um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna trust that you're going to use this some way. That's a great perspective. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Elizabeth. I think frequently we use the whole like God's will you know, thing as a cop out, maybe just because mm-hmm. we fear, we fear asking big things of Him, we fear. Um, looking stupid ourselves or mm-hmm. making God look stupid. But mm-hmm. what if, you know, what if we asked more? Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Um, so that goes to my other point, which is I think a lot of times people have an over-spiritualized view of prayer. So they feel like they can... So so 
So here, so here's the bad thing, right? If your prayer is only for like material goods, Lord, give me a car, give me, give me money, give me health. I mean, do you love God or do you just love the good things that He gives you or can give you? Um, but there's a kind of like overcorrection. So you only ask for like vague spiritual things um, that 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 uh, are not are sort of immeasurable in your mind. Um, I think. It's good and right, like if, if you're suffering joblessness or underemployment, it's good and right to say, Lord, you know, please give mm-hmm. me a job. Um, and you explain, right, or you, you communicate with God, like, you know, I, I, I want to be useful, I want to provide for my family. But what if you ask for, like, and then, and then you say to us, but what if God's will is not, is that I don't get this job? Like, let's say you, you're interviewing for a particular job, you say, Lord, I, I would really like this job, please provide this for me what if that's not god's will this is what jesus says in luke eleven eleven. he says what father if his son asks for a fish will instead give him a serpent right so boldly ask god for specific things um again if if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you desire and you'll be given to you if 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 you understand the will of god um, you will always you you will start to ask for things that please him and and delight him, but nevertheless, uh, there will always be a great deal of uh, ignorance on your side. So go ahead and still ask him for specific things, knowing that God will always, always, always never give you the the serpent. He'll always give you the bread, right? He'll never he'll never give you terrible things. He'll always give you good things. So that should give you confidence to to ask. Finally, last point, prayer is confession. The posture of prayer is a broken heart. Let me read to you David's famous Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So prayer comes out of an emptiness that seeks to be filled with God. Um, And I think that unless we recognize our spiritual poverty, unless we recognize um, our weakness, we won't pray. And I think in that sense... Like in my own, in my own like sort of spiritual autobiography, those seasons of my life that have been really filled with prayer, intense prayer, rich, um, um, uh, rich spirit-filled prayer, has really been times where I felt very, very weak. Um, I was going through defeats, setbacks in my life, um, and I think that's good and right. Which is that you don't. You don't pray when you feel full. You pray when you feel empty. Um, and I think in that sense, prayerlessness is a kind of test. Do you really believe the gospel? Because if you believe the gospel, you know that you are not a self-sufficient human being. Um, and therefore, you're going to constantly know and, and remind yourself that you're a beggar coming before God, asking for his bounty, his uh, banquet. Um and so you have to constantly remind yourself of your spiritual poverty, your spiritual brokenness. I think a lot of times we only confess our sins in prayer when we remember those, like when, when it's obvious to us. So again, this is also a discipline. Uh, confess to God your sins. Recall to your mind sins both of commission that you've perpetrated and committed and omission. The good things, the righteous things which you ought to have done which you did not confess them specifically before God, and I think you will find yourself feeling broke, more and more broken through prayer and more and more delighting in God for his grace, for his love for you. So 
that's the lesson. I was really hoping to end on time, which I did. I'm <laughs> Any questions or comments? All right, let's go to our Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, so often we don't know how to pray. Uh, but we have this deep assurance that you will give us the spirit uh, with groans too deep for words for for even when we when, even when we cannot articulate our thoughts and feelings to you, you help us. So we ask that you help us to pray. You give us a rich prayer life, which really means a, a life of communion, a fellowship of nearness to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.